0: Hello, underreported listeners. Welcome back to season two of our show. I'm Nick Lemon. I lead a book imprint called Columbia Global Reports at Columbia University in New York City, where I'm also a professor and director of Columbia World Projects. We started uh, Columbia Global Reports almost five years ago at the suggestion of our very journalism-friendly president of Columbia University, Lee Bollinger, who felt... Accurately, that um, major mainstream news organizations have pulled back on their coverage of the international scene and wanted to do something from within the university to help fill the gap. That's what we've been doing. Um, we've published 19 books so far with a bunch more on the way. Um, you may have noticed that aside from a few bonus episodes, we took time off from podcasting this fall. While we've been away, our Columbia Global Reports team was hard at work publishing three new books that you may have seen. First, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World by Bethany McLean. That came out in September. Second, The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization by John Judas, which came out in October. And... Third, The Curse of Bigness Antitrust in the New Gilded Age by Tim Wu, which came out in November of 2018. Each of these writers will be joining us later in the season, as well as other friends of the show. As always, we'll focus on sharing stories you aren't already hearing about and connecting them to the current news whenever we can. To kick things off, today's guest is Joel Simon, who's here in the studio with me. Hi, Joel.
1: Great to be here.
0: Thank you for being here. Joel is the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. He's written widely on media issues, contributing to Columbia Journalism Review, Slate, the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Guardian. Over his nearly two decades at the committee, Joel has worked on dozens of hostage cases and led numerous international missions to advance press freedom around the world. His new book is We Want to Negotiate the Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages and Ransom and it's out now wherever you buy books. Joel, uh, let's start just by um, uh, telling our audience what drew you to this subject. Um, You know, we've known each other a long time, uh, but I thought of you as a press freedom guy and not a hostage guy. Um, What got you into hostages as this topic?
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm a press freedom guy, uh, and uh sadly, uh, when you're a press freedom guy, sometimes you have to deal with hostage issues. And over the course of a couple decades at the Committee to Protect Journalists, uh, I've seen journalists taken hostage uh, around the world and sometimes killed. I think everyone's familiar with the uh, Danny Pearl case. He was uh, kidnapped uh, in 2001 in Pakistan, the Wall Street Journal reporter, um, and. uh eventually beheaded. So, sadly, I've had some experience doing with these kinds of issues. Uh, but I, in the course of my time at CPJ, I'd never seen anything like what happened uh, in Syria. And this began uh, uh, in really the summer of 2013. At least that's when we started noticing that many journalists were just vanishing uh, while they were reporting in Syria. And we actually didn't know what had become of them. And... Uh, At some point, one of those journalists is a a journalist who we all know now named Jim Foley. Uh, I had met him uh, briefly, and he was well known to people on our staff. Um, And in the summer of 2014, I got a call from David Rode, who's a New York Times reporter who was also kidnapped in uh, Pakistan. And he said that Jim's parents, uh, Diane and John, wanted to meet me. Because they had decided that they wanted to try and raise a ransom uh, to bring home their son. And they asked for my help. We had a meeting at the office. And uh, I wanted to do everything I could um, to help them. Um, obviously, it was, as, as I mentioned, somebody I knew, and I felt it was part of my job uh, as a defender of, of journalists. Um, but there were a lot of challenges. Um, there were some of just questions that I had in my own mind about the ethics of this, the legality. Um, and also, CPJ internally had a policy of, let's call it discouraging the payment of ransom, because we believed that um, – paying ransom could lead to uh, additional kidnapping, making it dang- more dangerous for journalists. Well, we all know how the Foley case ended, uh, tragically, with, with Jim's beheading. Um, and uh, other, another journalist, Stephen Sotloff, and uh, a number of other hostages were also killed. Um, and after this had happened, Diane Foley, Jim's mother, came to me and she told me, you know, I appreciate the help, but I, I felt you could have done more. And I had a conversation with her, an honest conversation about my concern about paying ransom. And she said, well, how how do you know that? How do you know that paying ransom actually leads to more kidnapping? How do European countries pay ransom. Uh, How do you know that it's the best strategy uh, not to pay? And I said, you know, Diane, it seems so obvious to me that this is true, but I've never really uh, looked at it. And I said, I think as a journalist, I have an obligation to really dig down and understand the debate around this issue. And that was the genesis uh, of this
0: book. Before we get into the larger point, I just want to go back on the Jim Foley case, um, because I think uh, this is not a secret and it's in the book, but, but it may not be familiar to Americans who followed the case not super closely and think of him as having been... Uh, kidnapped and held hostage and then beheaded along with Sadloff. Um Foley was being held with a, a, a large number or large-ish number of other people. Um, so could you tell us who they were and what happened to them?
1: Yeah, so when... The situation changed in Syria. There was a period where um, the rebels fighting the Assad regime actually welcomed journalists and other uh, humanitarian aid workers and other international figures, provided some protection for them because they wanted to document uh, the atrocities committed by the Assad regime. Uh, but really, sometime in 2013, you started to see the rise of hardline jihadist elements linked to al-Qaeda, um, and they had a different view of these international figures operating uh, um, in Syria, and they began to target them. And they just began to, uh, to vanish and to disappear. At first, we didn't know what was happening. Uh, but eventually, uh, the Islamic State, a new group, sort of emerged, and it became obvious that they had been uh, carrying out these targeted kidnappings. And in their custody, they had several dozen uh, Westerners, international figures, um, some were journalists, some were aid workers, there were a variety of different, different people in Syria for a variety of different reasons, and they were from a variety of different countries. Uh, some were from the United States, some were from the United Kingdom, but many were from European countries, uh, uh, Italy, Spain, France. Denmark, uh, Germany. Uh, and th- at this time, uh, these different countries had different policies about how they responded uh, when their citizens were taken hostage. Some had a policy of trying to negotiate and pay ransom. Some had a policy of refusing to pay ransom uh, and not negotiating. Uh, and in the end, uh, the Islamic sp- State exploited Uh, This difference in policy. Essentially, all the hostages who came from European countries that pay ransom were eventually freed, and all the hostages that came from countries like like the United States and the UK, which do not pay ransom, uh, were eventually killed. As you
0: took up Diane Foley's challenge and began to rethink this I mean I think all of us Americans were kind of raised on the uh, bromide that you don't negotiate with uh, terrorists because it'll only encourage them uh, in in hostage situations in particular also in general Um, I can tell from the book that you've changed your mind to some extent so could you tell us how that happened for you
1: yeah um I, I I think there were there were it really was a journalistic exploration, um, and I think there are several factors. First, um, I, I became aware of how this policy originated, um, which surprised me. Basically, uh, in 1973, there was a hostage incident uh, that took place in Sudan, in Khartoum. A, um, a Palestinian uh, group took. Control the Saudi embassy in Khartoum and and kidnapped a number of diplomats, including some U.S. diplomats, and they made some immediate demands uh, for freeing uh, Palestinian prisoners held by. Israel, and I think somehow by Jordan. Uh, and they also demanded the release of Sirhan Sirhan, which was a kind of strange uh, demand. He was, of course, uh, the, you know, the, the person who uh, assassinated Robert Kennedy. And President Nixon actually had a press conference uh, scheduled the next day after this occurred. And at that press conference, he was asked, you know, how are you going to respond to this hostage demand? And he said, you know, we won't be blackmailed, we won't negotiate. Uh, that was understandable, given the demands. Uh, but the hostage just responded uh, by killing uh, the the American diplomat and. Um and after that happened, uh, to a certain extent, the policy was sort of formulated around that statement. Uh, the U.S. was already uh, carrying out a review of how to respond to hostage situations. Um, um, uh, somebody at the uh, um, Rand Corporation uh, had undertaken this, this, this effort and hostage hostages taking at the time mostly targeted U.S. diplomats working abroad, particularly um, in Latin America. Uh, and this person from the Rand Corporation Brian Jenkins, uh, who carried out the research, uh, basically you know I spoke with him, and he basically told me that to a certain extent, although the u s position was hardening the the no concessions policy was basically formulated. Around this off-the-cuff response. Uh, and even at the time when they carried out the review, he presented his findings. And he said there really isn't any evidence to suggest that refusing to negotiate or refusing to pay correlates in any way with a reduction or, re- or reducing okay. the threat uh, of future kidnappings, that just was not supported by the evidence. So that was one thing that caused me to reevaluate my view. Mm-hmm. Did Britain, which is even more hardline about this than the
0: U.S., did it formulate its policy at around the same time, or earlier, later? Yeah. Well, it,
1: it was it was it was earlier. I think there were a number of it, it, you know um, British diplomats who were kidnapped, um, in, also in Latin America. At the time, that was a was a common tactic um, to target. Uh, Diplomats, And so the we don't negotiate with terrorist policy was really formulated in response to a specific kind of kidnapping that targeted diplomats who were, of course, employed by the government. And even when that policy was formulated, it was never intended to apply more broadly to, say, average American citizens, for example. And there have always been so many exceptions, too, I should point out. Uh, For example, if you're taken prisoner during an armed conflict, you're a prisoner of war. Uh, the Geneva Conventions actually contemplates that there'll be negotiations in exchange of prisoners so that we don't negotiate framework doesn't apply there. If it's a domestic kidnapping, absolutely doesn't apply. The FBI has always uh, negotiated and even paid ransom. There's, I didn't know this, but there are uh, actually uh, money uh, sort of stashed around the country at the Federal Reserve, uh, three, as much as $300,000 that the FBI has used for something called ransom as lore where they essentially pay the ransom, free the hostage. And then uh, it's very hard, as one FBI uh, agent pointed out to me. Kidnapping is a hard crime to get away with because you've got to get the money. And when you get the money, you're very vulnerable. So the framework was never intended to be very broad, but, it, but it, the, the way it was perceived shifted really in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks um, and the war on terror because then it was put into a new framework.
0: Now, on the other side of the ledger, there are a number of European countries you discuss in the book who have quite a different policy. Um, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about this. First of all, who do you think is closest to having it right? Yeah. And and second, why don't we know more about this? Um, I was surprised, maybe I'm just out of it, but I was surprised to learn from you that there are these different policies in Europe.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of the reason we we don't know about it is because when two... When 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 allies these are these are countries that are allies have so widely divergent policies, and when uh, they each view the other's policy in some measure as a betrayal of their own ideals, they don't communicate, they don't talk about it, uh, they don't they don't really uh, try and you know they're not able to find common ground. I shouldn't say they don't try because they did try, and that's something um, I looked at in in my book. As to which country has it right, I would say none. Um, here here's what I found: I found uh, that Uh, In France, which is the country that is probably most... Reckon, you know thought to be the most uh, likely to capitulate and pay it's actually a much more complex dynamic and it has to do with french political culture and basically the way it works is if you can bring people out in the street and make a fuss on behalf of the hostage you raise the political cost and france has a history of relying on the state uh, it also has a history to to resolve these kinds of problems it also has a history of, politi- of you know the government responding to political mobilization and uh, political mobilization around hostage taking. So that's the dynamic. You have to put enough pressure on the government that it seeks a political solution. And the, the, the and so there are all these groups now in France that mobilize on behalf of hostages because their lives literally depend on it. Um, and how do you get them home? Well, in most cases, you have to pay, and the governments are willing to do that. But then they want the political benefit so there 's this whole ritual where the President goes to the airport and meets the returning hostages and you know gets all these accolades and 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 they you know because there 's such a clear political benefit um, they 're encouraged they're, the political reality is they want to pay. They're, they're willing to pay very large ransoms, which encourages more – I think raises the price for every hostage everywhere in the world and actually puts more money into the hands of these terrorist groups. So that's not a great option. Spain, on the other hand, uh, because there is a really strong uh, kind of mm, – uh, 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 kind of almost a uniform understanding that it really is the responsibility of the Spanish government to resolve these problems, they are the country, along with Italy, I think that's most likely to pay. And as a result, they have a perfect record. That's one reason I chose Spain to document on recovering every single Spanish hostage mm-hmm. who's been taken by terrorist groups because they've paid. So I don't think anyone's got it right. Right. Um, I think not uh, not negotiating as a uniform policy uh, actually is ineffective uh, and uh, but but paying uh, large um, amounts of ransom to terrorist groups certainly uh, fuels their, you know, increases their uh, capacity to carry out further attacks and actually increases the overall uh, demand for ransom. Let's spend
0: a minute sketching out kind of a landscape of of the hostage taking business, um, which you do in the book. Um, So you have, you know, what has been your doorway into this journalist being taken hostage and and, uh, interested in is that on the rise, uh, is it fairly recent? Then you have, as you mentioned earlier, um, diplomats being taken hostage. Mm -hmm. Then you have the phenomenon, particularly in Latin America, of uh, just wealthy people and, you know, their children Mm -hmm. being taken hostage as a kind of business. Yeah. um, Without that much political content. Um, And then you have a a kind of insurance industry that's built around this. So could you kind of paint that background in for us a little bit?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, one thing about hostage-taking is... um, almost all hostage-taking is criminal in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, So the kidnapping, it's not hostage, it's really kidnapping. So the purpose is to um, secure a financial benefit. And those cases um, are handled pretty routinely. People are kidnapped. Uh, They're mostly people work, you know, in their own countries, they're not international political crimes, uh, a ransom is paid and they are freed. Um, and that is, a, that is a risk that people who are exposed to that possibility have to insure themselves against. And so there's a whole industry that grew up, it really grew up in Latin America, but it's based, uh, the, the center of it is in London, and it's called kidnapping and ransom insurance. Um, most people don't know about it, and there's a reason for that, because these policies can actually be invalidated if you talk about the specific policies, because they don't want the kidnappers to know that you're insured. And the way they work is that... Um, Uh, If you're kidnapped, you have to raise a ransom and pay. And then after you pay, you will be reimbursed for the payment. Uh, And the kidnapping – the the industry, the insurance industry will often provide a professional negotiator to help ensure uh, that the ransom that is paid is as low as possible. Uh, So it's a – this works quite effectively. As terrible as a crime as kidnapping is, if you are insured. And most major companies insure their employees when they're operating in these kinds of environments, or you're a wealthy person, you probably have insurance. Most of these cases um, are resolved through the payment of ransom. Um, now, there is an important carve-out that I go into my book that we can talk about now, if, you, if you'd like. Um, and that has to do with what are called prescribed cases. What are prescribed cases if you are kidnapped by a designated terrorist group and there are ways different ways that groups are designated as terrorist groups, then all of a sudden it is illegal to pay the ransom uh, technically illegal because you are you are giving money to terrorists uh, and the insurance companies. Uh, legally are not a, a, allowed to reimburse you, so your policy is essentially invalidated and that 's one of the things i found in my book that 's functionally unworkable is um, The insurance companies and the families and employers of these people need to make a distinction between are you insured by a criminal group? And let's be clear. Some of these criminal groups are pretty darn nasty. You know, they're Mexican drug cartels. Uh, You know, if you give them money, they're going to do some nasty things with them. They act kind of like terror groups, perfectly legal to pay a ransom. Boko Haram in Nigeria, illegal. Uh, violate uh, the Patriot Act, violate uh, laws that prohibit um, providing material assistance uh, to terrorist groups. So you're pretty much on your own um, if you're kidnapped by one of those groups.
0: So, and, and just sketch in a little bit on, on the world of, of diplomats and journalists. Mm-hmm. Are journalists a sort of new category here?
1: Well, they're not new, but it used, it used to be that diplomats were targeted as representatives of the countries uh, with which political groups had a grievance so the diplomats were targeted uh, because they represented the government of the of the country and we'll call them civilians uh, they were not targeted uh, regularly and um, you know some of the reasons for this was because uh, the media environment was different than just talking about journalists and even terror groups really needed to talk to and engage with journalists in order to get their Message out, and they had a certain trust. There were certainly incidents we know about. You know, Terry Anderson, you know, was a journalist who was uh, kidnapped by um, Hezbollah in, in, in Lebanon and held for for seven years. Uh, so it wasn't that it didn't happen, but they're relatively rare. But a couple things changed. Um, one was that um, governments around the world hardened their security for diplomats, so they became much more difficult targets. Uh, and secondly, uh, there were, you know, new forms of Technology that changed the relationship between journalists and terror groups. There's particularly, uh, you know, when Al Qaeda emerged, and you know, the the kidnapping of, of, of Daniel Pearl was a kind of the first instance of this. But it was a signal to uh, jihadi groups uh, around the world uh, that journalists and aid workers and others who uh, were sort of not off limits, but were less um, likely to be targeted, uh, were now fair game. So when when you uh, kidnap a journalist
0: um like Daniel Pearl or Jim Foley. Um, are these people just out for money, or are they trying to send a message, or is it a mix?
1: well there are you know one of the things I learned in in my own work and and also in writing this book is every case is different and and that's part of the problem with having a uniform policy of you know we don 't negotiate uh, there may be circumstances in which uh, you shouldn't negotiate because um, the strategic it, you know, uh, interests um, are 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 so clear that negotiating would be deeply damaging to the kind of national security. And there are others where, where it's something you may uh, want to consider. Uh, so each case is different, and the motivations are different. I mean, I've seen journalists kidnapped, um, you know, by, by criminal groups, and they just want a ransom. And I've also seen journalists kidnapped where by political groups. Where, for example, in the case of Daniel Pearl, um, you know, there was no real serious discussion of ransom. I mean, they always saw him as something of a of a political hostage, of a tool uh, that, they were, they, that Al-Qaeda was eventually going to use um, to send a terrifying message to the world. And one of the things I point out um, in my book is just how effectively they sent that message. I mean, most people who lived through 9-11, I don't think this applies to younger people, can't name a single person who was killed in the Twin Towers, even though there were thousands of them. But they know Daniel Pearl. And why is that? Was because of the intensive media coverage of his case, um, and they, you know, we personalized. We in the media. I mean, I participated in trying to to personalize it because that was the game plan back then. You you humanized and personalized the experience of the hostage. But if the intent of the people taking the hostage was to kill them in this heinous manner, uh, you're actually playing into their hands in furthering their cause. So it's a really complex process of decision making and each case is different. So let's go back to the Jim Foley case and you were
0: Mm -hmm. really involved you know you write about it and you were really involved as an insider Um, it's a lot more complicated than just you know they took him hostage They kept him with a bunch of other people from other countries. The other countries paid ransom. We didn't pay ransom, so he was killed. Um, So, could could you talk a little bit about what was what was the Foley family doing? What was the Obama administration doing? Was there ever any hope that Jim Foley could have been released? As the people he was, most of the people he was held with were
1: it's It's hard to answer it's a it's a very painful question actually I, and i don't and i don't you know after doing all the research for my book i still i still don't know categorically what what the answer to that question is and I also want to be clear about my you know my involvement in the foley case um you know i i don't I wouldn't call myself um an insider I had certain times at which I was deeply involved, but a lot of what was happening in the Foley case was really um you know very much behind the scenes and, and, and I was not being uh, consulted or, 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 or deeply engaged until the point where the family decided, you know, they wanted to go public and they wanted to try and um, raise money to, to, to pay a ransom. The title of the book, We Want to Negotiate, is actually drawn from a message that there were only a handful of times that the kidnappers communicated uh, with with the the. the, the Families of the American hostages, and in one of those messages, that was what they wrote. They wrote, "We want to negotiate. Uh, Jim Foley's a friend of ours. We don't want to harm him. Uh, we want money." Um, uh, and that was a, Was the family believed an opportunity uh, to try um, and negotiate a, a ransom payment? But um, the, the the there were a lot of challenges that the families were facing. One was that there were these group of American families and they didn't know each other. It actually took uh, David Bradley, uh, the owner of the Atlantic, who be- took a personal interest in this case to bring the families together and to allow them to speak with each other and share their experiences. What they found was that they were, they all had a similar experience in that they felt thwarted and, and, and sort of uh, shunted from agency to agency by the U.S. government. They didn't feel uh, that this, the, the president, in particular President Obama, uh, and the leadership around President Obama took... Um, a sufficient interest in their, their case. And at one point, they had a meeting uh, with uh, uh, members of the National Security Council, and they were told, if you pay a ransom, you face legal jeopardy and, and, and you, you could face legal consequences. Um, so they felt that they, they really weren't, weren't treated very well and that it was excruciating for them to see the European hostages being freed one by one while their children uh, remained in custody. And one of the things I did in this book is I talked to one of the European hostages uh, who was held along with Foley and Satloff who... Um, was introduced to me by, by Diane. His, his name is Federico Motka, um, and I don't think he, he, he's spoken about his experience previously. You know, and he told me, and this is his view, and I, 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 I believe it's correct, that there, were, there was probably a time uh, early on when uh, the kidnappers, and there were group, different groups of kidnappers, I should point out, by the way, uh, that they were, they, they, they were in charge of managing the hostages, um, probably were looking for some sort of deal for all of them and at some point their position changed it may have been that they realized that um, they were going to get large ransom for the europeans and 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 they were not going to get uh, those kinds of ransom payments for the americans and the british hostage so they exploited this difference in policies and they got um, you know tens of millions of dollars and they got victims for their execution videos, um, which they used for their recruitment um, to, 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 to send a, a, a fearsome message to the world. So, you know, this policy, these, the difference in these t- policies was exploited by the Islamic State, mm-hmm. and they got exactly what they wanted, which was lots of money and these horrific videos. Um, so, that's one of the things I looked at at the book is how do how do we allow that to happen? How do we get to a situation uh, where the where the different policies were actually playing into the hands of the terrorists?
0: So uh, this leads to uh, what I was going to ask you next, which is um, you know, if you were President of the United States, uh, that's a bit. Uh, well, Not from my standpoint. (laughs) Um, I think you would do an excellent job. Um, But what would you know? You sort of said nobody gets this right. So now you have a chance to get this right. What would your policy be?
1: Well, in terms of what I would articulate um, from 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 the standpoint of the U.S. government, I would call it a, a policy of strategic ambiguity, which is you don't say you don't negotiate. There are many cases in which you would never negotiate and never pay. But what's the point of announcing that? I mean, if if, if, if the hostages believe they may get paid – well, they're going to – I mean the kidnappers rather uh, – they're more likely to keep the hostages alive. Um, and that may open opportunities to gather intelligence, to launch a raid. So I think, I think you, you – know, to the extent you express what your policy is, it might be something like we are working with the families and doing everything we reasonably can to support their efforts to bring their loved ones home. That's about all you need to say. Um, Secondly, what is the what what is the problem here? How do you define the problem? Kidnapping is a tactic of war, and in my one one way I frame it is that you know there's there's two reasons why the logic of never paying ransom will not work. One is, every people will do it. You know, people will pay ransom to get their loved ones back if they have to. And one person made the analogy. I think it was an FBI agent that you know uh, banning the payment of ransom is. To stop hostage taking is like uh, stopping armed robbery by making it illegal to give the mugger your wallet. So it just doesn't work. Number two, uh, um, you know how do you, you know how do you define the problem? And I define the problem as. Um, too much, the the, the amount of money being paid is too high. It's always going to be a tactic of war. There are always going to be kidnappings and war. It's always going to be a strategy. You have to accept that. It will be there. Uh, So what you want to do is you want to minimize the harm, and the way to minimize the harm is to reduce the amount of payment, the amount of money that you can get from kidnapping. So the European strategy of paying these, negotiating directly with the um, hostage takers, drives up the prices and means that more money is actually going to them so what I would do is I would essentially look to privatize the negotiation mm-hmm. there are already these professional hostage negotiators uh, that have a very effective um, uh, track record uh, they're kind of an extension of the um, uh, um, the insurance industry and I would say that if you if you are um, uh, um, kidnapped you uh, And the government will support the family by making sure you have access to a professional negotiator, and you will try to negotiate a financial resolution that's reasonable. The government will play a similar role to the one it plays uh, in um, uh, criminal cases, which is to facilitate the communication, to make sure these families aren't defrauded, and even in some cases, I would suggest deliver the money. And there's one other thing that I would introduce. There may be circumstances in which governments believe it's in their national security to pay. And I'm not saying the government should just pay willy-nilly, but there may be certain circumstances where European government or the American government may believe this, in which case they should have a mechanism to channel the money quietly to the family, maybe without the family even knowing um, – and I don't think there's a perfect solution. It's just it's just it's just a, a terrible crime. Uh, but I think that's a lot better than the political posturing of standing up there and saying uh, we won't pay, or the European alternative, which is to politicize uh, these kidnappings and in the end um, use them for the political benefit of 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 the leaders uh, of these countries
0: had the foley family had access to a lot of resources could they have made a side deal with their son's kidnapper and bypassed the us government entirely
1: well they they tried and they they technically would have faced legal jeopardy for doing that and they were very concerned about that and I was concerned as well as someone who was uh, involved Uh, and then after uh, Foley was killed Diane Foley who's the subject of another chapter of the book led this um, incredible crusade and it wasn't just her but I think she was instrumental to actually change the US policy and there was this hostage policy review that was carried out by the Obama administration they actually made a lot of improvements in terms of the way uh, that they dealt with with the families uh, but one thing they never put on the table was the no concessions framework. I, that was clear. They were not going to talk about that. But, but when, a, when that new policy was announced, President Obama made clear th- that no U.S. family had ever been prosecuted. Uh, Even though it was technically illegal to pay the ransom, no one had ever been prosecuted. That was as close as he came to an assurance that they wouldn't be prosecuted in the future. But as one insurance uh, person I profiled in my book kept saying to me, it's all a gray area. If you are operating in this world um, and trying to raise money to pay a ransom – uh, for someone who's held by a terrorist group, you really don't have any guarantees uh, that you won't be prosecuted. It is—it is already uh, obviously. I mean, it goes without saying. It's got—it's the most difficult uh, thing that a family could ever go through. Um, and the reality is, even today, they don't have legal clarity. Do
0: we have any hint of what President Trump thinks about this issue?
1: Yes, we do. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I spoke with. Um, uh, so, so under the Obama administration, um, the point person on the National Security Council for this issue was was Lisa Monaco. Uh, she was the head of, of, of counterterrorism on the national or headed that area on the National Security Council. And she briefed um, her successor, Tom Bossert, who who uh, played that role in the Trump administration, about the uh, hostage policy review and how the Obama administration uh, had shifted its approach in the aftermath of the uh, killings of Americans. Of, of Americans uh, in Syria. And uh, Bossert is no longer uh, with the Trump administration, but I was able to talk with him. And he told me uh, that he carried out a review of the policy and recommended to President Trump that he keep it in place. And the reason he did this, he told me, was because he felt the families uh, had really participated, uh, the families of American hostages in the uh, uh, discussion of the policy in, the, in the, the policy review. Um, and he told me that Trump accepted, uh, the, 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 the Obama administration essentially without comment. It's about the only policy from the Obama administration that remains intact. And there's reasonable cooperation in terms of, or, or let's just say, communication between, uh, the, uh, pre, you know, officials in the Obama administration who worked in this area and those in the Trump administration, uh, who are handling it now. I will say one thing about President Trump and the way he views this issue. If Obama was sometimes um, criticized for – You know, by the families, they felt that he was so focused on the strategic imperative. You know, deny, and it's a legitimate strategic imperative. You know, denying terrorist financing is is an absolutely legitimate goal um, of uh, and a a goal that's consistent with our national security. But that he sometimes didn't understand the human dimension of it. I think Trump, to a certain extent, because he's actually prioritized um, the recovery of American helds overseas. He he sort of almost takes a a little bit of a European approach. And if I worry about anything in the Trump administration, because families tell me they're getting some attention from from senior officials and they appreciate that, but I worry that he politicizes the whole thing and that he's indifferent or oblivious to the strategic considerations. He's absolutely, of course, he's gutted the State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, he's gutted the kind of, he's contemptuous of the other things you need to resolve these cases, you know, local knowledge, expertise, the seasoned diplomatic corps, a free media. So um, I, I think, but, you know, I think, so I think it's obviously a mixed back, but, but Trump certainly has uh, given the issue some attention.
0: How many American hostages are out there right now?
1: Well, one thing you asked me earlier is, you know, have we seen, you know, a kind of wave of kidnapping and where, where are we now? Well, that's actually one of the term I would use. Um, you know, kidnapping comes in waves and it's part of it – it sort of becomes part of these kinds of political kidnappings we're, we're talking about. Criminal kidnappings are always going on uh, in the background. Um, and um, – and we saw a huge spike in the number of uh, Westerners kidnapped uh, when this became a favored uh, jihadi tactic. Uh, so with Al Qaeda and the Islamic State um, and the Taliban uh, and and other and other uh, and in Somalia, which we haven't talked about much, um, uh, with uh, 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 but that has faded somewhat. Uh, be, it's faded because uh, al-, al Qaeda um, do- doesn't hold territory in the same way. Uh, there, uh, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in North Africa, which was responsible uh, for many of these kidnappings, is weakened. The Islamic State uh, is obviously weak, and so we see, we're seeing an ebb right now. Uh, but I-, I think that could shift uh, easily. It just depends on you know the circumstances, and there are uh, Americans um, who are um, held overseas um, in conditions that. We're, we're not quite certain about. Uh, for one, one example is uh, Austin Tice. Uh, he was a uh uh, a freelance uh, journalist who uh, was working for The Washington Post, the McClatchy. Uh, he was working in uh, Syria. Uh, he was kidnapped. This was not kidnapped. He was detained at a uh, some sort of checkpoint. We don't know all the details. That was six years ago. Uh, the U.S. government and my sources as well have told me that he's alive. They believe he's alive. We don't know precisely who's holding him and why. We don't know... Um, Uh, what kinds of negotiations might or might not be taking place. But I will say this based on my research. It's really important that we keep cases like his visible and in the public eye because it is very easy, especially after six years, uh, for the public and therefore for the government uh, to forget about these cases. And I, I think his case won't be resolved without consistent government engagement.
0: We're at the end of our time, so we have to stop. Um, but thank you very much, uh, Joel, for for coming in and doing this. Um, this is a fascinating topic, and as listeners have just heard, you're getting from Joel a level of discussion that you just don't see in the daily press. That's what we're here to do. Um, So I hope everyone listening will have a chance to take a look at his book. It's available now. And just to remind you of the title, it's We Want to Negotiate the Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages and Ransom um, by Joel Simon. That's our show for today. Just one reminder to subscribe to the feed and please write a review when you have something to say about the show. We love hearing from you. Um, Here's a recent review, for example, from someone called Bruce CT that said, found it intellectually stimulating. Can't wait for the rest of the podcast. Well,. Uh, You won't be waiting long, Bruce. We're going to keep putting them out. Definitely stay in touch with us. You'll find all our social profiles, as well as our books, blogs, events, and more at globalreports.columbia.edu. That's globalreports.columbia.edu. Most readers are curious and busy. Our books are for them. I'm Nick Lemon, signing off. Thanks for listening.